The world is changing at a faster pace than ever before. As we begin the path to recovery after worldwide disruption, this podcast explores how the design industry can adapt to changing expectations and create a better future for your businesses and consumers. I'm your host, Peter Marion, and you're listening to Create Tomorrow, the WGSN podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the climate crisis. The global shutdowns last year meant that huge volumes of air pollution were taken out of the atmosphere. But the number of environmental disasters is accelerating, such as last year's forest fires in countries like Australia, Brazil and the US, amid devastating floods in China. 2020 was a record-breaking year. The hottest ever temperatures were recorded in the Death Valley, and the hottest year ever, globally speaking, while Super Typhoon Goni in the Philippines was the strongest landfalling tropical cyclone on record. I don't say all of this to scaremonger, but to emphasise that for consumers, the climate crisis is no longer a theoretical problem that will need to be solved in the future, but something that is urgent and happening now. And at the same time, having witnessed the swift actions from governments around the world in response to the pandemic, consumers are now expecting a similar level of drive in response to the climate crisis. All of this is driving broad shifts in consumer behaviour, as the pandemic accelerated shifts around values, with people adopting a much more frugal mindset, appreciating the smaller things and living more mindfully. To unpack was a tremendously challenging and complex topic and the role our industry can play in being part of the solution, I'm joined by some of my lovely colleagues. We have Chloe Girard, a global senior consultant from our mindset team. Hi, Chloe. Hi, Peter. And then from our WGSM beauty team, we have Emma Grace Bailey. She has been a huge driver of the sustainability strategy here at WGSN, and it's so nice to have you here. Hi, Emma. Hi, Peter. And lastly, we have Sarah Housley, our Head of Consumer Technology at WGSN. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Peter. So I'm skipping the niceties for today as we have so much to cover, and I'm just going to jump straight in. What is the one thing that each of you are doing differently to live more sustainably compared to this time last year? Who wants to kick off? I think one thing I'm doing differently over this last year to be more sustainable is shopping a lot more locally. So sort of supporting local businesses in Walthamstow where I live, so local restaurants, local pubs and stuff like that, and also attempting to grow my own vegetables, although that hasn't gone very well. And therefore, I'm sampling quite a lot of my neighbours' homegrown vegetables, which are spot on. That sounds like an amazing bit of progress there. And I think, you know, there's something lovely in the intent, even if, uh, you know, you haven't had a lot of success with your own growth uh, so far. What about you, Sarah? I am, because I have a toddler in the house and she gets through clothes and toys and general consumer goods at a faster rate than anyone else in the house, I've been buying secondhand wherever I can for anything I buy for her. So I'll always check out eBay or um, local listings to try and buy something used rather than buy it new, which isn't the biggest shift I could be making, but it is one that's going to add up over the long term. Well, yeah. And I think when you, like you say, you know, when you have children, I think one of the things I always see with my friends with kids is that there is always so much stuff in their houses and it and it just gets thrown away or given away. It just, it, you do go through a lot of things very quickly, and especially even with things like clothing, even outside of toys and things like that, you know, they grow so quickly and then you have to buy so much stuff to be able to keep them clothed. So, you yeah, know, that's a really interesting one. And what about you, Chloe? So I think for me, it's been a, a little bit about the smaller routine. So I've actually been focused a lot more on my beauty regime and how I can use more natural products. Um, it's actually never used to be a focus for me before, but now seeing my face online so much and seeing the blue screen effects, I'm really thinking about what ways I can kind of combat that with, you know, more natural chemicals or, or natural products actually to make sure that I'm kind of looking after my skin on a daily basis. And it's been nice to kind of bring that ritual into my day to day. 
And I think that I think one of the things you said in there about ritual is a really lovely thing because it's not just about sustainability being a good and a moral good, but also something that seems like it's quite pleasurable for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the pandemic has sort of just made us all realise how we're globally connected on the fibres and the materials and the ingredients that really make up our world and how the products that we use and we consume and then we put back into the water have an effect on the global wider sort of ecosystem that we're contributing to. So that's been a really kind of important sort of small way that I can think about that on a daily practice. Fantastic. And that's something that we're going to be exploring in a lot more depth over the course of this episode. So thank you for starting us off in that direction. But before we get into that um, in more depth, um, I really wanted to start with the consumer because obviously that's uh, the way that we work at WGSM. We usually start with the consumer and then work outwards. And I was just wondering, how do you think uh, people feel about sustainability at the moment? Um, Are their attitudes changing? Um, And is there sort of much more of an uptake around sustainable behaviours at the moment. I think, Peter, what's happening is that people are really starting to connect the dots a bit more. It's never been so apparent as it is now with seeing the climate crisis actually happening in our local neighbourhood, outside our house, in front of our face, in a way it hasn't so far. So we're really seeing the outcomes are starting to unfold around us. And that's got to be driving consumer change because it makes it so immediate and so visceral. And when things really affect someone's personal experience in such an immediate way, they're going to make changes. And we've seen that with the pandemic. People wear face masks as they see the need. And um, in the same way, as people see climate change happening, they will see and understand the need more. But I think what we see in the data is that consumers say they want to buy sustainably and they may be um, happy to pay a little bit more for products that are sustainable, but they don't always follow through on those actions where it's the harder choice or where it's the less convenient choice. They don't necessarily make that more sustainable choice. So I know something we're looking at at WGSN at the moment is how companies are actually making those choices on behalf of the consumer and just making it the default option. And if they do that, that's... um, perceived quite positively by the consumer as that the company has done the work for them and has taken some of the work off them and that's seen in a really good light. I'd just like to second that actually I think the element of trust has really come through in this last year like people have lost trust in a lot of sort of systems and structures anyway in light of the pandemic but I think that also plays a role in sustainability and sustainable brands and businesses you know Consumers are really demanding to have proof now for everything that, you know, brands are talking about when it comes to sustainability. It's kind of no longer enough, as it were, to say they're going to achieve something by a certain date. They really have to show their customers exactly what they're going to do, when they're going to do it. And if they don't meet those targets, kind of be open and honest about them, because otherwise that consumer is just going to continue to lose trust and sort of, you know, backtrack from some of those brands. Yeah, one thing I would would add on to that is that What's really underpinning this era is this sort of feeling of anxiety for consumers. And I think what's really interesting about the sort of ways that people are adopting new approaches to sustainability is it actually allows a lot of hope and it allows them to kind of combine these anxieties and kind of counter them and think about how, you know, they could be adapting to these new ways of life and thinking about how to sort of streamline their anxieties and move towards a more hopeful future. And what we're seeing as well is that actually when anxiety and hope are combined with new products or services, adoptions actually it compels that product adoption so particularly for kind of new services or technologies it's a really strong combination um, behind kind of consumer psychology and taking on new trends and taking on new products so that's a really kind of uh, compelling part I think of what's driving more sustainable behavior and 
Emma, to go back to what you were saying about trust, I think, um, and there's so many things that all of you have said that's so interesting um, in that last section, but I think one of the things that I keep coming back to and I, I keep thinking a lot about is around um, greenwash and, and false claims. And, you know, I think the thing is we're coming to a point now where so many brands have, you know, different kinds of capsule collections or small offerings that are, are claiming sustainability, but then, you know, they aren't necessarily implementing them across the full business. And I'm just wondering, where are we at with consumer perceptions of greenwash? Are we getting to a point with consumers where they're kind of like starting to feel a little bit like they're being taken for a ride with some of these sustainability claims? Or do you think that people are still largely on board and tracking in a good direction? I think consumers can spot it a mile off now, or a lot of consumers can spot it a mile off. Um, as you said, those sort of capsule collections or those one-off products that brands are, you know, making incredibly sustainable, sustainably, which is brilliant, but they are quite tokenistic in this regard. And they're kind of being used, and maybe not intentionally, but they are being used as a bit of a diversion tactic. You know, we've created this fantastic sustainable collection, which is, you know, does all the right things, but tackling the sort of beast of their offering is still kind of going under the radar. And I think consumers are really starting to realise that they need the brands need to pivot back to what their core offering is and work on improving the sustainability aspects of those products. I would agree that there's more literacy around um, sustainability and that is helping people to spot greenwashing. But I think one of the solutions is to be really specific in your language as well. And we're seeing a big evolution in language. So where previously someone might have been content to just say something sustainable. They now know they're going to get challenged on that and they're going to have their customers saying, well, how is it sustainable? What are the facts and figures even? They're more, we're becoming more data literate as a society and we're looking at um, data in a more interested, engaged way. So I think companies have a real opportunity to publish statistics, but also to publish amazing language and storytelling that, to go back to Chloe's point about hope and ambition and positivity, if the language can become really positive and inspiring as well, then that's going to really um, move us forward on our sustainability journey as well. I do think, though, however, there is a bit of a, an issue, even in industry, around some of the descriptions for these terms, that there's a, you know, different brands will sort of publish their progress and talk about net positive or, or carbon neutral in different ways. And actually, they're talking about the same thing, but referring to different areas of sustainability. And I think that's a potential issue just in industry and how we kind of compare different brands progress amongst each other. And I think that's where um, actually, to your to your point of what, what both of you were saying, actually boiling down some of these concepts into something that is really tangible for consumers is really important. Using kind of lofty terms that don't really describe exactly what it is that you're moving and, and pushing the needle on will end up alienating consumers and confusing them. So, so it's definitely a balance. And that comment, Chloe, on sort of different terms meaning different things to different brands, like one really good example is natural beauty, sort of what you were mentioning earlier. I think a lot of people instantly think that something natural is, is better for the planet, but that's not necessarily true. And I think in the beauty space, it's become such a, a huge market, which is fantastic, but it kind of allows brands to use that, that term because it's not certified, it's not regulated, um, and tap into a consumer sort of sentiment that it's, it's brilliant for the planet and it, you know, it's the best way to go when it's not necessarily true. And I think we need to start opening up those terms and explaining them more to customers. 
And I think there's a lot of stuff in sustainability that isn't necessarily that marketable that businesses should be looking at that are lots of things that are cost-saving measures. I remember like years and years ago going to like an M&S Plan A factory that, it, that was getting that accreditation somewhere in the UK and they'd managed to save, it was a hosiery factory, and they'd managed to save something like £4 million a year on electricity or something like that um, through like... Uh, plugging up holes in air in air um, throughout the factory. It was there's like loads of it's tiny incremental changes. And obviously they were saving four million pounds a year, which is a massive saving for that factory, but also a really amazing um, shift in terms of, you know, that being a more sustainable option. And I think there's lots of really non-sexy kind of things that companies need to be looking at when they're doing this sort of stuff. And obviously that was, I don't know, a really, really long time ago now. But if you start to think about things like, you know, managing markdowns, minimizing returns, and all this kind of really, you know, you don't put a sustainability label on these things, but if you're minimizing the amount of wastage, that has significant business advantages, but also significant environmental advantages. If you're only making what you're selling, then that has a really net positive shift for a business. And I think we need to start thinking about ways that we talk about, you know, waste you know obviously we're talking about zero waste and that that has a very specific meaning and, and a very specific idea in a consumer's mind but you know if you can start thinking about your systems in a different way i think that's going to have a huge impact on the consumer and on businesses um which takes us into i guess the next sort of thing that i wanted us to talk about which is really around systems versus individuals and and this is something that you know we've all been talking about as we've been uh discussing the sustainability forecast this year which is really like do we even need to be thinking about the consumer anymore should we just be doing this as businesses and emma i think in some of our conversations you made some really great points so do you want to talk a little bit more about this a lot of brands are still very focused on the consumer obviously and a lot of clients that I've spoken to say that you know our customers don't want this they're not asking for it they're not interested in it I don't want to invest money into it because it's not going to entice more people to buy my product and something that I've been discussing in the beauty team is very much around that concept of while sustainability might not make somebody buy your product, it will stop somebody from buying it. And I think that's the sort of differentiation that brands need to get on board with while it's consumer focused, but you have to make those changes in the long run because you'll start putting off more and more people from investing in your brand. I think that's a fantastic point, Emma. And that's actually a way of thinking about it that I hadn't really considered before. So thank you for expanding my mind there as well. Something that I heard recently that really encouraged me on this subject was a client of WGSN's saying that um, even aside from consumers wanting more sustainability, they're actually seeing their employees demanding it as well. So people will increasingly only work for companies that operate in a sustainable way. And that is a, a very different type of pressure, but it's, it's still a very valid type of pressure. Yeah, I think another area that brands could really be thinking about more is their business to business practices, because so much of, for example, plastic waste and packaging waste actually typically comes from the business to business shipping and distribution. And you're right, going back to your point earlier, Peter, it's not something that consumers are necessarily going to care about or want to think about. And um, and that tends to be what sort of drives brands purchase decision or, or kind of costing decisions, particularly. Um, so there is a lot that brands could be doing to gather a lot more data around how they operate, where those gaps are in their sustainability strategy that would just help them guide some more of their, their roadmap and their planning with a bit more clarity. I think on the system side of things as well, we've got to think about legislation and what will, that will force brands to do, whether or not the consumer is interested in those sort of function functional elements of their company. You know, things like 
the EU has now banned all the export of plastic waste to non-EU countries for recycling. So that's going to drastically shift the systems that brands that you know manufacture and stuff in the UK in the UK and the EU, um, you know, use. Well, yeah, I saw a really interesting um, ad actually recently for Tresemme in Australia, and they were advertising that their plastic uh, shampoo and conditioner bottles are made using Australian recycled plastics, which I thought I've never seen that before anywhere else. I've seen sort of some stuff in Brazil around that, but it was the first time I've seen that in a, in a large scale advertising campaign. And I think that there is that real shift where people are wanting to know what's happening to those plastics after they've recycled them. We could be starting to see a lot more national pride around sustainability as well in quite an interesting way because Norway are famously the leaders in electric vehicles and there was the the Super Bowl ad with America saying we want to beat Norway. So if there's this kind of friendly competition coming through that, that will really drive innovation kind of internationally I think. the things that we keep hearing about when we talk about the sustainability narrative is that always like small is better right and that small companies and we should be supporting small makers and all that sort of thing and I think one of the things that I keep seeing and Sarah I think you've seen some of this as well um, I saw you present about this a couple of weeks ago where large companies are really starting to use their muscle um, to start moving the needle on some of these larger challenges that the industry has is facing can you talk a little bit more to this? Yeah, absolutely. So that example is from the consumer electronics industry, and it's Google, who set a really ambitious goal to use recycled materials in all of their hardware products, which they actually met several years ahead of schedule. And they, to be fair to them, quite downplayed this achievement. They um, they were really quite quiet about it when they could have really shouted about it. But they achieved it ahead of schedule, and part of their... Um, aim with um, forcing their suppliers to make it possible to use recycled material at that scale was to use their clout as a huge company to make it possible for then smaller tech brands to also benefit from those same supply chains. So if a supplier can um, scale up a recycled material for one brand, they can then do it for another brand and the price will continue to come down, the quality will remain consistent and everyone can benefit. I think we're increasingly seeing that in fashion as well. We're seeing more companies partner up to kind of drive innovations. And I'm hopeful that we'll start to see it across multiple industries as well. Yeah, I mean, some of the other retailers and brands that are doing that are H&M and Ikea. And so we're really seeing some some real kind of commitments from, from those companies really trying to talk about that more. Yeah, Ella's Kitchen is another great example of where they're doing that. They've, they've recently become certified as a B Corp and they are pushing all of their suppliers to be on the same journey with them to make sure that not only are they going to be achieving net zero, but actually all of their suppliers are doing the same, which I think is really um, it's interesting approach because they realise that for them to be operating at net zero only makes an impact if all of their suppliers are as well. So I agree in terms of this kind of broader power and putting that pressure on your supply chain as well. I'm actually in the process of doing some research on sustainable palm oil, which is a massive topic, as everyone knows. And um, Mars have recently announced that they're reducing their number of palm oil supplies from something like 1,500 down to 75 which is a huge drop. Um, I think they're still going to, you know, sort of have the same amount to use, but that's really, really so they can focus in on helping those suppliers become as sustainable as possible and have much more visibility over the processes in that sort of harvesting and manufacturing from the suppliers that they buy from. 
one of the other things that I wanted to talk a little bit more about, and I think we have been talking about this already, but we haven't really been talking about it around the framework and some of the language that we've been using at WGSN. I mean, democratic sustainability is such a, an important topic. And, and obviously, as we're talking about these system shifts, um, we really are talking about de- democratizing sustainability because traditionally, you know, as we were making consumer and individual choices to make sustainable purchases, obviously that is a something that is more accessible if you are rich from a wealthy background, from a developed background. And obviously that's not necessarily going to help when we have a lot, you know, when uh, when the climate crisis is a global problem and it's really affecting people in the global south far worse than people in um, the global north, really. Emma, you've done some really amazing reports on this already. Um, so tell us a little bit more around some of the things that p- brands, particularly in the beauty space, are looking to do to democratise sustainability. Yeah, of course. It's a really interesting subject and it comes back to my previous point around not creating those tokenistic sort of one-off products or collections. It's very much about sort of redesign over new releases and um, focusing heavily on sort of your core product offering and looking at all the different ways you can make that far more sustainable. But in order to make it really accessible to more people, you know, at the moment to purchase a sustainable item, you know, like a refillable, going to your supermarket to get refillable cereal or something, those shops and those um, experiences are only available in very few global areas and, and therefore accessible to only a very few number of people. And so brands really need to look at that convenience uh, sort of sector when it comes to creating sustainable products. And it's really about not trying to create behaviour change, but leaning into people's current behaviours. And I think that's one of the ways in which milkman delivery services, particularly for beauty and food industries, have kind of increased over the last few years, particularly in the last year. But obviously we're all stuck at home, so it's much more convenient than when we were sort of running around cities and whatnot. But, um, you know, that is a behaviour change that's ingrained in a few generations back or even just like the last generation. So bringing that back into our mindset is quite a key, you know, tapping into habitual elements of how we engage with products is a really key way to make it much more accessible and easy to use and access. I think one area that is really interesting is seeing the way that brands are sort of expanding their strategies around how they design products and services and how they consider people, planet and profit are equal kind of um, importance when they're creating their sustainability strategy and actually putting their sustainability goals at the forefront of their strategic planning. And I think that's the only way that a brand can really think about how to create products that are democratic, that do serve the whole world, people as well as the planet, and actually thinking about how they can kind of bring more diversity into their design process as well to make sure that they're not creating one size fits all type solutions, but actually thinking about who they're serving and what community they're serving at the end and bringing those people and that community closer into the design process as well. I mean, you're always going to have the issue of cost when it comes down to these sorts of sustainable purchases. And, you know, notoriously, they are a lot more expensive and therefore out of the re- out of reach of you know people who aren't super wealthy. I think brands really need to make a decision here. Like they can either swallow that sort of cost in the short term, which will hopefully drive demand for that product because it's affordable and therefore drive demand for, you know, the more expensive sustainable material or process in the long term, which will mean the price comes down. Or they can sort of share that price with the consumer, but but be really transparent about it and where, you know, using sort of transparent tiering systems um, to show the consumer why they're having to pay that little bit extra for a product that they might have bought previously for a little bit less. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Emma. And 
what we're seeing within a lot of our research briefs currently within consulting is is a lot more nuance in the way that our clients are actually asking us questions around what drives consumer behavior to want to invest in sustainability versus what really encourages them to make those compromises where they may actually have to change their behavior to buy something more sustainable. So there is a lot more nuance, I think, in, in the research and the way that we understand what motivates consumers uh, decision factors and, and when they're willing to invest versus when they they kind of need to be encouraged to, to change a behaviour and it's, and it's less of a cost issue. I wanted to move on to our last topic for this episode, which is cryptocurrencies and nfts we couldn't call ourselves a podcast in this day and age if we don't talk about cryptocurrencies and non-fungible tokens that's uh, nfts for, for those of you that like the acronyms um so uh sarah what are they and uh why why are they important in a conversation around sustainability yeah that's uh that's opening pandora's box there pizza with what are they <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not going to go into a full explanation of blockchain right now um, because oh, it'd be please a, don't. It, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> it would be a much longer podcast. The reason we want to talk about them is that they've really captured everyone's imagination. NFTs are just the hottest thing at the moment. And the other thing that has really captured everyone's imagination is how bad they are for the environment. And this has hit the headlines like nothing else. And I am absolutely fascinated that people are so concerned about the impact of blockchain on the environment when there are lots of other things that are much worse that they are not concerned about in the same way. And I think it's something to do with this being so new and so unknown and so technological that people are a little bit um, distrusting of it anyway. Um, But I think it's also because we have an opportunity now to make sure it's sustainable from the start. If this is going to become a huge industry that is consuming so much energy, let's start right, let's design it properly before we get going so that it's not further harming the environment because the one thing we can't afford now is to further harm the environment. So as um, you'll no doubt be aware, um, the energy use in in blockchain and in Bitcoin and in um, minting NFT certificates is very, very high. It's comparable to whole countries' energy use. Um, And that's because of the way it's set up. And there are more sustainable processes being developed now to make it less energy intensive. But I think we also have to think about, is is it worth it? We have to do the cost benefit analysis. We have to think about what's the point of this craze? What are we getting from it? And what's what's in it for us? Well, I think that's a that's a really interesting and, and worthy question to ask because, like, obviously, you know, it has captured a lot of people's uh, imaginations, and it is, you know, obviously a huge trend. So I don't want to be like a massive naysayer here or anything like that. But it's a very intangible good that is requiring a huge amount of energy resource at a time when we are now experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis and the impacts of climate change. And so, why are we wasting all of this energy on this thing that is just like? I mean, I have, I, do, I, I say this having, I, I do have cryptocurrency and I like, you know, I'm obviously a massive hypocrite here, but I do think that this is going to open up a lot of questions. And like, you know, I think there was that article, Sarah, that you shared with us when we were discussing this before this uh, we recorded. And it was really around, you know, there are some things that are going to come into play maybe, but it's going to take a long time to uh, move that sustainability needle along. And so 
Is this just a is this just a craze around the NFT specifically? I think that cryptocurrency and blockchain is obviously here to stay, but do you think the NFTs are just kind of like a brief flash in the pan? I think that's the the absolute million dollar question at the moment. I think it's fascinating. The conversations it's starting are fascinating. And I don't want to sound like a naysayer either, because we're both very interested by technology and very open to the possibilities of technology. And NFTs are fascinating. But the one comment I've read, which has really stuck in my mind, is this is a trend that is happening at a time when we've all been inside for a year. And this is the kind of trend that happens if you've been at home for a year. So I think it'll be interesting to see when we can all start to go outside a bit more, what happens with NFTs after that. Absolutely. And we're moving to my last question that I ask everyone at every episode. Um, What is the one thing that companies should do immediately and in the longer term to support these shifts towards becoming a more sustainable economy? Chloe, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, So I think it's two things. I think, first of all, doing a diagnostic, understanding where you are now and where your biggest gaps are and having, you know, speaking to your entire business as well and understanding where they think the gaps are and the immediate solutions and also the long term goals should be. And doing that diagnostic will just give you a really great view of where the landscape is and what your what your current goals, your immediate wins could be and what you need to kind of work on in the future and gather a lot more data to make better decisions and make those more, that more strategic planning kind of work for you as a business as well. From my point of view, in the short term, I think brands need to be as transparent and open and honest as possible. I think consumers can sort of spot a bit of, as we said before, a bit of greenwashing or, or sort of the fudged truth a mile off. And the more honest you are with them, the more they'll trust you in the long run. And then in terms of the long run, I think it it comes down to a lot of supply chain tracking and transparency. You know, it's very hard to be sort of tier one on a brand and be able to say that your entire supply chain is is sustainable or is doing the right thing and has the right practices in place if you have absolutely no transparency or visibility into what various suppliers in tier two or tier three are actually doing. So you need to invest in that technology that will help that whole supply chain become much more visible to you. Absolutely. And Sarah? For the short term, I'd, I'd echo Emma really. I think it's about just putting that information out there about what you're doing and trying to write it in just very human, very authentic language that it just says very honestly and simply what you're doing and what you want to do and then holding yourself accountable to that. And when you don't meet your own expectations or goals, holding yourself accountable to that as well because people do appreciate that. And then in the long term, I really want to see the narrative around sustainability energised. So I want to see a really creative approach where brands are um, evolving the aesthetic of sustainability, investing in some really exciting material science. So like mycelium leather is so exciting and that's going to become so huge. And I want to see that creative energy just continue to amplify in the years to come. And that's all we have time for today. As more and more people become vaccinated and the world is beginning to open up again, I wanted to say a huge personal thank you to everybody who has listened, shared, emailed, subscribed, or slid into our DMs over the past year. Thank you for welcoming us into your ears. It has been a pleasure and an honour. I really hope that it served you well. And as always, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please subscribe across all major podcast platforms. And if you really like what you heard, then please leave us a rating and review. It really does help us to get the word out there. If you want to learn more about what we've been talking about, then please head over to wgsn.com to find out how you can get access to much more insight and analysis. 
And if you're already a WGSN subscriber, head over to the site where we've pulled together some of our research on the future of sustainability with some key reports from this podcast in one handy report. Thanks to our guests. And I'd like to thank our show producers, Roland Bodnam and Bethan Ryder. As ever, so grateful for all that you do. And again, thank you for being here. Please stay well and healthy. Bye now. <laughs>